The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up like heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore, you, restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my, as my bow, I have made Ephraim as its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine, the young women. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain. To everyone the vegetation in the field, for the household gods utter nonsense, and the, and the, div the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. May anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow or bow. From him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. 
Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scatter them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live in return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and, the, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his, in his name, declares the Lord. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, your wisdom has no limits. Your love is from everlasting to everlasting. We bless your holy name this morning and we thank you for this text. We thank you for the open invitation that we just read to pray to you for rain, to pray to you for our daily food. You are truly the one who does send the rain and you're the one who gives us our daily bread. You are our generous Father that we can come to you with our requests. And remind us today, Lord, that before you saved us, we wandered aimlessly like sheep without a shepherd, but you are faithful. Father, above all, we thank you for Jesus, because through him we went from being prisoners without hope to being prisoners of hope, joyfully captivated by your promise to sustain us forever. Lord, would you turn our attention to you and give us ears to hear as we study your word this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We spent uh, 10 weeks this fall studying the first eight chapters of Zechariah. And we saw how God proclaimed his unending faithfulness to a discouraged people, and our attention was drawn again and again and again to our Savior Jesus. And now we revisit Zechariah for the next three weeks, but the tone changes. God is revealing to Zechariah some very specific events a little bit further into the future, specifically judgment on the enemies of God's people and the anticipated coming, or what we call the advent of the Messiah. might be interesting to note that there are no New Testament quotes of the first eight chapters of Zechariah, but these final six chapters that we're going to be studying over these few weeks are quoted multiple times in the New Testament. I want to give you a quick word of encouragement Because reading prophecy like this can sometimes become intimidating and confusing, sometimes to the point that we just ignore them altogether. But take heart, because Jesus, our Messiah, is at the center of these texts. And our love for Jesus ought to stir us to love the texts that proclaim him. 
You may have already caught some messianic themes as we were reading this heavy text today. We read in chapter 10 already that God will bring out of Judah the cornerstone. And we were even singing about that this morning during one of our songs of worship, He Who Is Mighty. We sang, Oh, the mercy our God has shown to those who sit in death's shadow, the sun on high, pierced the night, born was the cornerstone. Jesus is, in fact, that cornerstone who was rejected by his people but became the foundation of the very kingdom of God. Now, to strengthen our hearts today and to marvel at God's kindness, through the advent of Christ, we're going to focus most intently at a few verses in chapter 9. Another word of encouragement. It's also going to be helpful for us if we remember two things when we approach challenging texts. Number one, prophetic passages often have a partial or immediate fulfillment and then a future or ultimate fulfillment. And number two, some of these prophecies sound scary, and rightfully so. But that depends on whose side you're on. So let me set the stage here with a, a scenario. Picture this. There's a, there's a 911 call for a gas station robbery. Now, I don't want to be too graphic, so let's say our robber is armed with a tube sock full of nickels. Okay? Now, when the police officer approaches the gas station with sirens on and lights flashing, your emotional response to that approaching officer is going to depend heavily whether you are the gas station worker or whether you are the robber. For the gas station worker, the approaching officer means peace. You go from being terrified to relieved. Yet for the robber, the approaching officer brings terror what was once a false sense of control or rule turns to terror at approaching justice. The coming officer is good for the oppressed and bad for the oppressor. Now with that, let's look at today's text. The passage that we read opened up in chapter 9, with the words, the oracle of the word of the Lord. Now, the Hebrew is literally the burden of the word of the Lord. It's kind of an interesting phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord. Now, these opening verses in chapter 9, along with the closing verses of what we read today, are harsh and vivid judgments on the nations, especially the nations who had been burdening God's people, Israel. Now, I would say that the constant theme in Zechariah continues in these later chapters. It's God's faithfulness to his people because he is jealous for them and doesn't abandon them. It continues on. Now, secular historians who read these verses are compelled to recall the military career 
of Alexander the Great. It's kind of interesting that we're surrounded by military today. There's going to be some military themes. So that's neat. I promise I didn't plan that. But Alexander the Great conquered these very regions 200 years after this prophecy was pronounced. But curiously, Jerusalem was left unharmed during that complete conquest by Alexander the Great. Unbeknownst to him, Alexander was marching in lockstep with God's judgment on these regions. Now, it's interesting because Ezekiel chapter 26, which we will not read today, we've read enough heavy texts for today, but Ezekiel 26 goes into some amazing detail on God's judgment, specifically on Tyre, who we read about this morning. The first wave of that judgment was carried out by Nebuchadnezzar using a 13-year siege on the city of Tyre. Jeremy promised me a dollar if I used the word siege today. But Nebuchadnezzar's siege caused the coastal city of Tyre to basically relocate to the nearby island of Tyre. But Alexander the Great eventually comes along and finishes the job. Let's read verses 3 and 4 together. It says, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Tyre boasted as being invincible, and Tyre was extremely wealthy. Silver as common as dust, and gold as common as mud. But God said that they would fall, and they did, hundreds of years after this spoken prophecy Alexander the Great conquered the island of Tyre, and though he credited himself with this conquest, it was really the Lord who carried this out. Now pause for a second. That should humble us because God carries out his plan and chooses through whom that plan will come. And if he proved faithful and trustworthy with these humongous events, Perhaps that should cause us to trust God with our everyday events as well. But shortly after this, there are some puzzling phrases about God's plan for these surrounding regions. And it starts in verse 7. Can we read verse 7 together? It says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Now, so in the midst of God's wrath on the prideful nations, he says some things that at first sound kind of chilling. They may have caught you off guard as we read that today. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. But what God is saying here is that he will purify a sinful people outside the household of Israel and bring them into his fold. 
See, the Philistines had practices that were forbidden for the Jews. They drank animal blood, which was forbidden for the Jews. They ate the meat of animals that were forbidden for the Jews to eat. And the Lord says that he will take away from his enemies not their lives, but their sinful identity. What he's saying is that he will cleanse a remnant from among them, the enemies of God's people, and they will become his people. There will be Philistines who will become like Judah. Can you imagine the surprise that the Jews would have felt when they heard this? Goliath's people will be brought into David's people and they will be united through the loving will of God. It's a surprising twist of the Lord's mercy on sinners. But it's ultimately accomplished in the future by one man. The promised coming king. We read in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now at this time in Israel's history, Zechariah's people have, have no true king. Zerubbabel was governor, but he was never crowned king. So this prophecy for God's people is be patient. Not only will you have a king, but when you do, you will have a righteous king. And when he comes, he is the one who will ultimately cleanse a sinful people and adopt them as his own. That is good news. Now we will be looking again at this central verse 9, 9. But first, let's see what God says about how he's going to pave the way for this coming king. Turn your attention to verse 13. God says, For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Interesting phrase. I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. Prior to the coming of this righteous king, God already has plans to unite northern and southern Israel, Ephraim and Judah. And they, God's people, will wage war against Greece, considered the enemies of God's people. Now what Zechariah describes here will find a partial fulfillment over 300 years later, still before Jesus comes. If you're trying to do some fast math here, the events will take place around 165 years before the birth of Jesus. And it actually becomes the foundation for the holiday we know as Hanukkah. Maybe you've heard the story of Hanukkah. Maybe you've heard it be told by the holiday armadillo. Yes. Years and years ago, there were these people called the Maccabees. Five points to you. They mean nothing but keep track. Five points. Absolutely. In, in the 160s BC, there was a terrible pagan king who was ruling 
over the land from, from on behalf of Greece. And this ruler had actually forbidden the practice of God's laws right in Jerusalem. And that was oppression that actually united the Jewish people against their oppressors. And there was a small Jewish military group called, you guessed it, the Maccabees. And they fought and fought and fought and defeated the Greeks, driving their authority out of Jerusalem. And then afterwards, they rededicated the temple to the Lord because it had been horribly desecrated by their oppressors. And then Jewish tradition holds that at this rededication in the temple, there was only enough oil for one night, but miraculously, the oil lasted for eight nights, thus Hanukkah, or in the Hebrew, it's for the word dedication. That's what the word Hanukkah means. So the victory of the Maccabees brought freedom to Jerusalem, which was a partial fulfillment of what we just read, and it actually brought about a partial fulfillment of verse 16. Look ahead at verse 16. It says, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. After that victory, the Jews would have felt this sense of freedom, of being free in their land. But as exciting as that prophecy was, it was a temporary victory. God's word proved true, and the Jews dwelt in the land without oppression for a short while. But it was only a shadow of a more permanent solution. And living after the cross now, we continue to see this, but in a peaceful way, because we share the gospel in love so that God is glorified by saving his flock, led by Christ, our shepherd. Now that will culminate in the ultimate fulfillment when all of God's people will permanently dwell in his land, shining as jewels, as a display of his glory. Let's read verse 9 again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Rejoice greatly, shout aloud. That is the proper response to this promised one, to this righteous king. But sadly, not everyone will rejoice. In fact, people tend to respond in one of three ways when presented with a new king. Three ways. There's open rebellion, there's fake submission, there's true submission. Open rebellion would be to reject the king's authority. You are not my king, and this is not your kingdom. Fake submission would be outwardly showing submission to the king, but only outwardly. And then there's true submission, rejoicing in the rightful king taking his throne. And people are told here to rejoice at the advent of the king. Now you may wonder, why, why all this talk of a donkey? 
What on earth does a donkey have to do with anything? With a king. There's two reasons. Two reasons why we receive this imagery. Number one is peace. And number two is gifts. Peace and gifts. First, a king riding on a donkey indicated peace. See, in Old Testament times, if a king came riding on a horse, he was mounted for war. If a king came on a donkey, he was bringing peace. I'll keep our military theme for a minute. In today's world, if a world leader approached another nation riding on a tank, the message would be clear. However, if a world leader approached a new nation riding on a Schwinn or a, or a Segway or Rolly shoes, the message would be much more peaceful. This donkey imagery is a peaceful message with the coming king. Now in, in Bethlehem, at the birth of Jesus, we see seeds of this even starting to take place. You may remember, the angel appeared to the shepherds in the fields, and then all the heavenly host cried out, glory to God in the highest. That's Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The birth of Jesus, the promised one, meant that peace was coming like a king riding in on a donkey. This also showed the humility, not the arrogance of the king. This was a king coming in humility. Which is astounding because Jesus had enjoyed the glory and honor of God for all eternity before this. And he left it all. He traded riches for poverty because of his great love for sinners to give us all that we need and more. His coming was marked with supreme humility even from his very first breath. He was born in the little town of Bethlehem. Down in a lowly manger, the humble Christ was born. But this humble king without sword and shield is coming to wage a war. Not on people, but on sin and death itself. And at the cross, he will conquer in overwhelming fashion. Amen? And he isn't done. That was the first advent when he brought redemption. At the second advent, he will bring resolution. There will be many changes between the first advent and the second advent of Christ. And when he comes again in glory, his peace will be ours forever. Pause and think about that. His peace will be ours forever. We will see him more clearly. Our eyes are not going to be clouded by sin or tears. They will all be wiped away. But the peace that Jesus brings is only for those who joyfully receive their king. For us who long for God's mercy, who know our guilty status before a holy God, knowing our need for a savior. Because there's no peace for those who reject 
the coming king. You might recall the Apostle John's description of when Jesus took on flesh in the opening chapter of John's gospel. Read John 1, 11, and 12 with me. It says, He, that's Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Remember the gas station worker and the robber responding differently to the approaching police officer? It's the same with Jesus. Do you long for his arrival, knowing that he will bring you peace? Or do you shrink back at the thought of Jesus' presence? Are you the gas station worker? You know well your need to be saved. Or are you, like the robber, going to be caught off guard as justice descends on you? Friends, if you know in your heart that that is you, please hear the gospel. Turn to Jesus. Receive him as your king. Welcome him gladly. He will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. Your sin is not too great for Jesus. Welcome him. And you will have peace. Now in Zechariah 9.9, that image of the king on a donkey also has a second meaning. Yes, peace. Also gifts. Donkeys were also used in the Old Testament to bear gifts, often for enemies, turning them into friends. We see this with Jacob toward Esau. We see this with Abigail toward David. That's a brief example I'll give you. So if you don't know the story from 1 Samuel, Abigail was the wife of a, a shameful man who had ignited the anger of King David in his defiance. And King David was going to be exacting wrath on that family. So Abigail arranged for gifts to be sent to King David on donkeys. Stories found in 1 Samuel 25. We're going to read the relevant verse up on the screen. Verse 18 says this. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared, five sayas of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. Abigail sent this gift offering and was saved by the gift because it turned away the wrath of King David. Keep that image in your head for a moment. Keep that image in your head. And fast forward to the New Testament. Soon after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and, and just five days before he went to the cross, we read this in John 12, starting with verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey 
and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. During this scene, which we refer to as the triumphal entry, people are seeing Jesus fulfill Zechariah 9.9, and they respond in the three ways that we mentioned earlier. Some openly reject this coming king, refusing to accept his authority. Others rightfully call Jesus the king of Israel in that moment. This is what we would call the fake submission because not a week later, these are the same people who are shouting for him to be crucified and yelling, we have no king but Caesar. That is fake submission. Well did Isaiah prophesy about them, right? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I pray that that is never us. That we never settle for fake submission to the king. Only showing submission when it's trendy or acceptable or safe. And then turning around and refusing to Submit when it really matters and when it's not acceptable or safe. You may also find it interesting that when the people cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're quoting from Psalm 118, verse 26. It literally says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But catch this, just four verses above that in Psalm 118, verse 22 says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was well known. Fake submission would happen. And yet there are some true followers submitting to the peaceful king. And they will be with the king they adore forever. When Jesus fulfills Zechariah 9.9 at this moment before his death, he was communicating the peace of God through Christ and the gift of salvation through Christ. Remember, Abigail used donkeys to bear gifts for David, turning an enemy into a friend And here in John 12, in the days leading up to the cross, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. This donkey is bearing Jesus, literally bearing the gift that turns God's enemies into his friends. Rebel sinners like you and me, adopted into God's family, becoming his beloved people. And as he continues to bring new people into his kingdom, we become his peaceful ambassadors, calling others to receive him as well. Now, we're not armed with weapons of force. We are armed with his word and his spirit. 
both of which are actually called swords in Scripture. No earthly war is fought this way. Because Christ said that his kingdom is not of this world. His rule reaches into the very heart of every single person who will receive him. It's his love, not tyranny, that establishes and grows his kingdom, even to today. See the contrast between earthly kings and the true king? From the earthly kings who wage war to establish temporary kingdoms that so quickly fade away. I'm going to close with this. You might recall the, the French emperor Napoleon. Now, he approached military conquests in the earthly way, the same way that Alexander the Great approached military conquests. And Napoleon, at the end of his life, was exiled on the island of St. Helena from 1815 to 1821 at his death. And he was on this island with with a military longtime friend of his, a general named General Bertrand, probably with a better French accent than I'm going to attempt. But he was exiled on the island with Napoleon, and Napoleon said this to General Bertrand. Here's the quote when, he was, when, G, when uh, Napoleon was reflecting on Jesus as a king. This is what Napoleon says. Alexander, that's Alexander the Great, of course. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. Napoleon was absolutely right. The empire of King Jesus is made of people who are loved by him. People in joyful submission to their peaceful king. And as followers of the king, we follow the ways of the king. He rules in love, and the world will know us by our love. And we urgently, urgently invite others to join this kingdom and to receive him as king. So will you celebrate the advent of Jesus? Will you join Zechariah in announcing the arrival of the king with shouts of joy to the world? Let earth receive her king. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a gift it is to read your plan for this world. We read your pronouncements of what you knew and decreed to take place centuries before they came to pass. And it's baffling and it's humbling. Father, help us to joyfully submit to the authority and the commands of Jesus our King. Holy Spirit, would you remind us of all that Christ has taught us in the Word? Lord, we thank you that we are free to celebrate the advent of Jesus openly in this place. We pray that you would sustain us to faithfully and patiently await the second advent of our King. It's in his name, it's in Jesus' royal name that we pray. Amen.